How patient the beings that lurk in static and shadow, their scratching souls impure as evil, and dripping grey the pus of moral decay. How jewel-edged these villains, but otherworldly they stay, until become real in my dreams, and haunt with spiderous knives, to sharpen or reap, we the vulnerable, we the asleep. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene, where we imagine a beautiful, sustainable, <laughs> tactile future. Aaron, your poem really captures our optimism, our optimism and our ethos yeah. very well. Well, today is the 12th episode in our storytelling semester, and we are talking about creepy things and fears, scary stories basically. So I thought I would try and write something that is about the villains that lurk in the corners of our imagination, possibly planted there through stories and often running amok in certainly my dreams anyway, as you mm -hmm. can attest. I can attest to that. Yes, sometimes Aaron thinks I'm a spider. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us this week. I'm so excited to have this talk. But before we kick off, if you are listening on Apple, you can subscribe on SoundCloud and Spotify. You can also subscribe or give it a like. Just help spread the Solacene vision. If you like it. Yeah, we also have Field Notes, which is a weekly newsletter of sorts we'll put into your email inbox. Alicia describes as the love letter to existence or to the world. <laughs> Each week we kind of just observe nice things that we think will relate to the solo scene or perhaps critical or some kind of creative uh, journal entry observations that we've made. So that's that. The first question for today, as my poem kind of introduced, is... Why do we find what we find scary in stories? And will that change in the solo scene? And I'll just talk a little bit about the poem, if that's okay. Um, you already mentioned that I sometimes think you're a spider in my sleep. I had that mm -hmm. little Easter egg in there. I talked about spiderous knives, which are like dual-edged and being wielded by the creepy villains of horror stories. I'm sure like a lot of people, even if you're not a big horror buff, you can recognize like one or two villains from movies, books, stories that have in some way influenced or creeped you out mm -hmm. um and i i use the metaphor in the poem that they're like two-sided they can either sharpen you or like or damage you and mm -hmm. i think that's something that's important to talk about when it comes to scary stories that there's there there is a, t a type of healthy terror i think and there's like a type of damaging terror but it's like in both cases it's things that might seem innocuous to our to our waking senses, you know, it's like, mm. yeah, it's just a scary movie. It's whatever. Um, but the, these characters that we, we believe in so vividly and because narrative is so sticky in our minds, like we're, we've kind of evolved to, to zero in on any kind of narrative that the things that we find in our, in our conscious waking choices to be just maybe a background movie or something, or just a fun two hours of jump scares. Sometimes it, it's, um, it's more than that, and that can manifest in certain ways, maybe in the the kind of subconscious battleground that is dreaming. Because I often dream, as you mentioned, about spiders and witches. You do, yeah. yeah. This actually connects really well to our second question, which we'll talk about later. But the question that we'll talk about later is the connection between healthy imagination and mental health. And I feel like what you're getting at with this is perhaps when you unintentionally consume scary things or without intention not unintentionally because you could choose to put it on but just kind of mindlessly consume it 
perhaps it can have a negative impact on your psyche. Yeah, yeah. And that's likely because we've evolved to be repulsed by certain things and find certain things scary or more specifically creepy. Creepy is different than scary because creepy things are uncanny. Okay. But it doesn't make you have a fight or flight response the way that a fear would. Okay. So it's like, why do we find clowns creepy or for me i find kids in scary movies really creepy <laughs> and it's because we don't know like it's ambiguous it's like it's a kid it's not actually dangerous but it could have something because of the way it's being presented and then when you see a kid in mm. a street I mean, it's old people old people yeah you're freaked out by them <laughs> um but if you see like a kid doing something weird you're always like unnerved by it but you're not like terrified the way you would be if like a spider jumped on you or if yeah, yeah. someone came at you with a knife like you'd be terrified and you'd have a flight or fight or flight response but with a kid being creepy you'd be like okay i need more information before i can so <laughs> make there's, my there's decision. the element of suspense yeah of narrative even because mm-hmm. i think that's important like we're talking about scariness in stories particularly we're not just talking about like like i mentioned spiders i guess i shouldn't have like things like images that are just scary that's not really what we're talking about unless they're presented in a in a narrative sense. Like, for instance, yeah. campfire stories. Like, those are good. Why are these stories creepy? Or something that was like this for a while. Um, this is weird because it makes me sound like I was growing up in the 70s or something. But for a while on my road, there were like these happenings when mm-hmm. I was growing up that no one was uh, really sure about. And on the school bus, there would always be rumors flying around. So those mm-hmm. are like stories extrapolated from an image like for instance um one day there was just a a really old looking straight out of a haunted house wooden chair at the at the bottom of our road which was basically a cul-de-sac and around it it had just appeared overnight and around it was like maybe i shouldn't be saying this on the podcast was a, a circle of stones with like a bunch of dust on the outside of the stones but the inside circle was completely clear so that uh, provokes the childish imagination in a lot of creepy avenues. Yeah, for sure. I saw a post online today on Pinterest and it was like, how to know if something's haunted, the way that the trees grow. And it's like, obviously the way trees grow doesn't indicate that something has a supernatural element to it. But it's like, it does make you ask questions when a tree is growing really weird. You'd be like, this isn't normal. Then your brain starts trying to put that image into the context. Okay. And yeah, I feel like what we're talking about isn't just like what's scary because like obviously a murderer is scary or obviously like a huge ecological disaster is scary. But we're talking more about the narratives. Yeah. So yeah, I think the question of why do we find what we find scary in stories is kind of kind of akin to why do we like why do we choose certain things to tell horror stories about or Mm. or scary stories about and it's like through history there's been folklore the vampire the witch um that is has these psychological elements almost the archetypes basically Mm -hmm. also i think we should talk about that next week archetypes um not sure how because uh those 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 are key elements of storytelling that we shouldn't just brush aside but they're basically like psychological fears kind of blown up to the to the extent of our human imagination which is boundless mm-hmm. um especially using the unknown like you're talking about a tree we don't know why it grows that way so it's creepy and maybe the nothing grows in that patch who knows what happened there so mm-hmm. we, we tell stories about that but it's like i was thinking about the, the stories that are a little bit more current 
that maybe haven't been told for hundreds and thousands of years and therefore haven't been kind of codified by generations of human pathology or human experience. Because with the, with the vampire, for instance, so many cultures have a different version of this that we know it's just playing on something primal that's innate to humans. But with more modern stories that are deemed scary, that perhaps don't have um, clear historical analogs, you're like, well, there might be something about the modern world that is prompting this, prompting us to find this scary that isn't mm. natural, to use that word. So like I was thinking about the, the preoccupation with serial killers and true crime so dominant in podcasts and just like general stories that are fueled by and serve to fuel a mutual mistrust in people. And I was like, maybe this is because of the the rapid rise in urban living over the last mm-hmm. 200 years or something. You think about it with the start of like Jack the Ripper or even tales older than that all the way to now. It seems like it's been really at the, at the front of our imagination. And mm-hmm. it's like so many horror movies, they're barely even supernatural. It's just like the Zodiac Killer or something like that. Mm-hmm. He could be one of us, which I wonder if it has always been so, that particular fear has always been so dominant in stories. Yeah, because there's so many people around us that we don't know, whereas 200 years ago, probably, like, before everyone started moving to cities, it was, you just would know everyone. Yeah. And if there was a seedy character, you'd know who they were. It wouldn't mm-hmm. just be like, it could be anyone. Yeah, so I think it's it's kind of a modern theme that plays on the the idea of urban anonymity. Yeah. And as we talk always about Solacene communities and localization and friendliness, let's say, yeah. um, I don't think that'll be something that's so so dominant in the in the solar scene. Yeah, that's a really good point. When I was Googling about fears, I was thinking, to me, the fears that come up are like death, spiders, small spaces. But the top one that kept coming up was people wearing masks and like the Uncanny yeah. Valley hypothesis of like, we find that creepy today in a way that we didn't used to. Mm. And I was reading about why that is and it goes into, you don't know who's underneath the mask, if they're a threat or if they're not a threat, if they're just someone who's calm and just wearing a mask or if they're actually scary and I thought that was a very modern thing and that I agree in the soul scene perhaps we can go back to anonymity not being scary because there's yeah a trust and a universal goodness that perhaps has come back yeah along the lines of perhaps new fears being created or exacerbated by particular elements of modern living I was thinking about old ones, like villains from folklore that maybe have lost some of their power to, to frighten because of like changes in uh, built infrastructure or just the general secularization of the world. And we've mm-hmm. talked before on the, on the storytelling series about how there's a way to believe in stories without genuinely thinking of them as religious, like mm-hmm. that you, you can embody the themes of the story much, much more. And I think in the solo scene, we will do that more with beings, uh, tales of the wilderness, because there will mm-hmm. be a wilderness in the solo scene, I hope. So there will be a dark forest outside of town that you can be creeped out by and kids can tell stories about. And maybe mm-hmm. some adults are like, I don't know what goes on in there. Like, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a fine line because we want to know more about the world. Like knowledge is a good thing. And so knowing that trees might grow a certain way because of the soil or because something was growing in its way or standing in its way is a more important thing than thinking that they're haunted. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should go back to some kind of dark ages of superstition, 
dominant dominating everything but there's a perhaps there's a balance perhaps we can be rationalist and scientific while also um indulging in some campfire tales yeah i agree there's definitely a lot of new fears that come out of the way the technology has been implemented in the modern world like there's the fear of surveillance or the fear of robots taking over the universe or now that we know that there might be life on other planets it's like aliens are actually spooky instead of where they used to probably just be mythological like the unicorn Mm. and yeah because we're not religious anymore for the most part it's like i feel like the supernatural things are perhaps going down in creepiness because we're we don't yeah, those are just silly. Yeah. I think about it with like the the general kind of playfulness with which people treat the idea of Satan mm-hmm. and demons and things like this. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of shake my head at it, even though I'm not the biggest believer in Satan. It's like... Well, I mean, in the solo scene and today, it's like deceit and lies and being cruel aren't actually things that you should be like standing for. And yeah. I feel like it's not like Satan has switched to mean goodness. It still means that. Like yeah. It still carries a weight to it. And I feel like words it, and concepts really carry a psychological impact. Well said. With regards to will it change in the solo scene, I think it's like, it's case by case. Because the more I thought about this question, the more I kind of changed it in my head to not what we find scary, but the stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. So it's, and especially the stories that we choose to read or listen as well like there's there's two parts of storytelling the telling and the taking mm-hmm. um so i think that people will have more vivid imaginations in the solo scene and so maybe that will make them a little bit more hesitant to marathon horror movies because these are actually going to affect you like we won't be so numbed and so dulled to human mm-hmm. experience it'll be more like when you watch a horror movie watching one when you were eight years old yeah terrified by it because that i mean personally that's how i am now but i feel like in the solo scene more people will have that kind of uh like i think dreams will be it makes me sad how many adults don't dream or don't um dream anything worthwhile really you know i think that's Mm -hmm. indicative of for one thing maybe poor sleep for another thing like practices that that numb our imagination and our subconscious so i think that's a, a thing that will kind of decrease the amount of horror movies that we um like to tell and be told but i also think that in a sense, will be more spiritually equipped to handle that kind of darkness. And I don't mean like a mass return to religion, but I mean, we'll be more grounded in real life. We won't just be floating through some abyss of cynicism Mm -hmm. and meaninglessness. We will have a a purpose. We will have a family. We will have a community. And so when we go to face these demons on a screen, let's say, because that's how I consider it, watching a horror movie, it's like you, you are with the protagonist. Like, Every time you watch those movies, for me, watching a horror movie, for instance, is the most active type of movie I can watch. I probably burn a, a lot of calories. Yeah. Because I'm like shouting basically the whole time <laughs> and like punching the air and stuff because it's the only way I can get through it. But it feels like you go on that journey with the characters. It feels like by the end, I've overcome that feeling and perhaps mm-hmm. even that fear. So, um, yeah, it'll be like we have a, a stronger sword and shield psychologically, maybe. Yeah, what you're saying, I imagine people in the soul scene will be a bit more aware of the fact that they can shape their imagination and shape their spiritual and waking and sleeping 
realities because right now we feel like we have no effect over our mental health or over our dreams but it's like you can actually impact your subconscious and I feel like what you're saying is we will realize that if you're consuming scary things all the time and become numb to them then it could have impacts in your daily life or in your dreams and yeah then it would encourage them to watch more variety and more take more time of like meditation upon these films before and after watching them Hmm. yeah it's that idea again of the solar sites just being so kind of mentally sound psychologically equipped to deal with everything in the real world and even most of the fiction they come across because of uh, a childhood uh, an infrastructure an education that basically just creates everyone to be their own therapist like i mm-hmm. think it's a sad thing how many people today go to therapy and have mental issues that need to be resolved and emotional misunderstandings and things like this yeah that there's no infrastructure to support them or to have prevented it yeah, or preventing it equip Preven- them with their like own e- skills. equipping us giving us the sword and shield is what i'm saying when you grow up yeah uh, which actually feeds really well into the next question but perhaps before that slight detour a detour to the humble okra plant i saw one of these in real life for the first time well i've seen okra in the grocery store and eaten it yeah but i saw the full plant in real life the other day and i was like wow this is a really beautiful plant today's organism of the week today's organism of the week would you like to describe it to the people aaron yeah it's a green plant with some fun like little trident like fern like looking uh, leaves coming off of it kind of mm-hmm. and the okra is almost growing up yeah like leaves, standing up which looks bizarre like a like an hand or an arm pointed up mm-hmm. and then quite a beautiful looking purple orange yellow flower on top bell like uh structure yeah it's kind of a trumpet shaped flower trumpet. the petals are really white but they're always depicted as yellow or at least they were white when i saw it in person okay then it has little purple violet dots at the bottom it's a really pretty flower and the plant just looks absurd. I mean, I saw it growing in a greenhouse alongside your humble tomato plant, your humble pepper plant, which everyone knows what those look like. And this one just looks so alien. Like, it just looks weird. As you said, the okra grow just, like, pointing straight up to the sky. And it just looks, they're super thin plants. Defying gravity. stocky. Yeah, it's super strange. Because I always pictured them growing just, like, beans, basically. Because that's what they look like when you eat them. But yeah, they grow straight up and down. And then I started looking into the actual history of this plant, where it comes from. And basically, there's no actual knowledge of where it comes from, which is so weird because it's what you call a cultigen. Do you know what a cultigen is? Cultigen. It was yeah. cultivated like a pathogen. Well, it's like a plant species that we only know the cultivated version we don't know the oh wow the wild one the wild one it's like this doesn't just wildly occur and there's really nothing that they can find that is like an intermediary between it and its ancestors so there was some eccentric botanists in medieval times who ancient egypt all the way up to modern times it was first recorded in like the 16th century the 17th century um and it's but it's been traded forever. It's like one of the most ancient plants that have been traded. So it's like when you try and code its D- or check its DNA, it's like you don't actually know where it's from because it was moved around for thousands of years. It's crazy. Um, kind of cool. And then it's also the first place that's listed as like it being used in their cuisine is North America. <laughs> so it's just like super prevalent in North America, but it's also part of 
Middle Eastern, Indian, Brazilian, Sri Lankan cuisine. It's just like a global plant. It's really cool. It's in the Malo family. I've had some of those before on the podcast. Cultivated in tropical, subtropical, and warm temperate regions. I think the Malo that we had before was the cotton. Yeah. Because you said it sounded soft. Yes. When you eat okra, there's that white like mm-hmm. spiderwebness to it. So maybe that's yeah. little pieces of cotton. Well, the family, I yeah. don't know what I'm talking about. The plant looks very similar, very stocky. Like it's not like a bush or anything. It's just like a flower. And yeah, I don't know. They're just kind of cool to me. They're 90% water, 2% protein, and 7% carbs. Do you like okra? I really don't. They're slimy. Yeah, I despise it. I might say that. But still a cool plant. If you get a chance, look at a picture or you can look at the YouTube video and see my drawing. Really great. It's not that great, but you know, I like the okra plant. Very inspiring to me. Thank you, Okra, for bringing us this episode. Um, the next question was, you presented it to me almost like one of those word clouds where it's just like the different terms <laughs> and we had to try and string together the actual connectivity. But it was something like, what's the connection between healthy imagination slash escapism and good mental health? Mm-hmm. So I kind of went at this like considering imagination like a, a healthy especially physically, version of drugs. Because okay. a lot of people use drugs, so I'm told, to escape. It's like um, the, the common refrain is that um, they kind of take the edge off reality. Okay. And I think imagination does that for me and for, for a lot of other people. Yeah, I see that. But I was looking at like actual mental health studies and stuff. It was like imagination and escapism can basically be the best prescription to anxiety or other mental mm. health disorders. But it's like... It also can just be the leading cause of these disorders. Yeah, I was going to say that. I wanted to make a little disclaimer that there are genuine uh, mental afflictions that involve perhaps the inability to properly discern reality from fiction mm-hmm. or, or just to, to imagine or to escape healthily, to kind of ride that line. Mm-hmm. So we should mention that, that we're talking about for the majority of cases. And of course, there are outliers that we have no idea what we're talking about. Oh, no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was reading like an analogy of what's a good imagination versus a bad imagination. And it's like, okay, you're a truck driver. That's your job. And you have a good imagination. And you're like, I have the goal of getting to my destination on time with everything intact. And it's like, I feel like that's, we all have that. We all have goals. If you have a positive mental health situation, you have healthy goals and you take meaningful steps to achieve them. And so it's like this person who's driving the truck, they're driving down the street and they're like, oh, I will pass when I have the opportunity. I will go the speed limit. I'm not going to go slowly because I want to achieve my goal. But then an unhealthy imagination would be like, ooh, what's a way I can be sneaky about this? I can jump over to the other lanes or I can like go super like above the speed limit and then achieve my goal plus have some time left over. And it's like that's an unhealthy imagination, which I feel like we can have in our daily lives of like, how can I cut corners to achieve this goal? (laughs) Maybe I won't sleep for two days and I'll try and just like work, work, work. And I was like, that's a really good analogy that I've never really thought of how that's imagination yeah. of like problem solving, coming up with ideas to problems. Yeah, that's imagination. There's um, there's cutting corners like that, which definitely isn't good. But what I thought you were going to talk about with the truck driving or the, just the driving analogy was like the games that you invent while you're on the boring highway. Yeah. It's like, oh, I want to see if I can get to that sign without while holding my breath or something. Okay. <laughs> The podcast gets my license rescinded. But sometimes that, that's what it's like. You know, when you're walking, you're like, 
oh, I wonder if I can reach that mailbox or if I will reach that mailbox before my song ends. Mm-hmm. Or if I can walk, like, let's say you're walking on a sidewalk and there's the, like, what are they called? The blocks. Yeah. The pavement stones that you're walking on. Mm-hmm. You time your steps, right? Yeah. It's like two, two each without stepping on the thing. Mm-hmm. But then every third step or, or every fifth step or so, there'll be the one where it's just one step. Yeah. So, like, games like that, where does that fall? I feel like I that's think it's fun. Like an, it's like an AI or an uh, augmented reality overlap, like overlay on our brain. It sounds so unsolicited. Yeah. But it's like, that's just always, always with us, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I was thinking about how this will apply to the solar scene. And my thought is the things we will be doing will hopefully not require, require that. Because yeah. um, <laughs> I was thinking, like, when I run, I do, like, okay, I'm just going to run to this mailbox, which is probably like 10 minutes away. I'm like, and then if I get there and I'm done, then I'll just stop. And obviously yeah. I'm never like exhausted for those 10 meters and I just keep doing that. But it's like in the soul scene, perhaps the scenery will be a bit more interesting or I don't really know. There'll be better places to run in community or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. No, I mean, in three-dimensional cities like in Montreal, I don't really do that pavement thing mm-hmm. so often because there's so much to look at and so much to engage in uh, healthily, I would say. Mm-hmm. But it's just like boring. Yeah. Boring places. I think boredom is when imagination kicks in the most for most people. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even more than genuinely unpleasant situations. Because yeah. then it can be hard to escape into into certain things. Yeah. Um, I had a note just on like the the creativity aspect of it, which is that the line between healthy and unhealthy, I think, often resides in our understanding of the process of creation. So like for instance, I think of people who get really addicted to to like those online games like World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. where it's a whole world and you are taking place in maybe multiple storylines a day mm-hmm. and you prefer that world perhaps to our own or people who are really, really big fans of Middle Earth, like from Lord of the Rings. And I think like the line is when you admire the world as an ex- a part of the its creator's work. So like you look at Middle Earth and you say, wow, look at all those languages this person created, how impressive. Look at all the research that went into it. Look at how cohesive he made it all. So it's kind of like when you're reading a book and you are seeing the the author's fingerprints over certain parts of the, of the world. I think that is a healthy way without being like overly critical. Like, oh, you can see what they did here and this is really shallow. And um, But just it's a, it's a healthy like awareness kind of. I always remember like here's a good example. When I was a kid and I would get terrified by watching some episode of TV or movie, my parents would always say to me from my hysterics just think of it as just imagine the set just imagine the costumes imagine the director on his seat saying um cut and just imagine all the lighting and everything and that helps and i still do that and even yesterday it's, you can do it for things that you're enthusiastic about so yesterday we were playing splatoon which is a mm-hmm. video game for the first time and we were noticing like oh wow look at this thing that they put in here wow it's such a cohesive world this is really well made i like the details here and you can you can observe these things i think from a an artistic appreciation lens mm-hmm. kind of rather than a wow i really want to live here kind of lens which is maybe a little bit less healthy yeah this is all this episode's gonna be the most cohesive yet because this all reminds me of the next question <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one more thing that i want to talk about in this area is i recently read i talked about it last week in brief but it fits here a little bit more um from the Solar Punk Detective, which is like a serial story series that I talked about last week. And they published in their newsletter this thing about Solar Punk versus 
what they call ruin prawn. So like <laughs> trying to consider the future and being like obsessed with the ruin and like, oh, all the disaster and this is going to be so cool. Yeah, there's an, there's an anti, um, <laughs> anti-human aspect to it for sure. Yeah, um, versus solar punk which is supposed to be inspired and just like this is what the world could be. And I feel like we can choose to be in the solar punk camp or in the optimistic camp or in the disaster and we get like obsessed with these it's still imagination and it's still like thinking towards the future but it's like extremism I suppose it's like being obsessed with the extreme and obsessed with the macabre I suppose yeah and I feel like that's not good and not very solacine but it's about building rather than destroying kind of yeah um, my final point was not artistic because I thought I dwelled on that a little bit too much, which was about using imagination not to write a story, but to to better your life, your community, the life mm. of those around you in a way. So you're walking, man, this street, imagine if it was like structured a different way. And so you make that observation, which is what I think most people do, like, oh, why do they put the trash here? It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But you could use imagination to think, where could we put the trash? How could mm. we fix this? And I think that's a step that a lot of people don't make, partially because, as I say, we're swelling in the sphere of cynicism, but also partially because our imagination doesn't get prompted and rewarded like that from a young age. So we kind of lose it, like the, like the flexibility of a child. But I think that imagination can obviously be really helpful. And I think the one element we do it in is in our own lives a little bit more selfishly. It's like, oh, this just doesn't work for me. So we will put some hours in um, to try and imagine how we can fix it, like how we can lose weight or how we can get more free time or something. But we don't often extrapolate that to our community or our friends or something. Yeah. And I was also thinking you can do it to always be imagining or, or often be imagining, let's say routinely once or twice a day, how bad things could be. So like the opposite of that. Imagine if things were really awful. Imagine if my whole family died. Imagine if my house burnt down. Or imagine if it had burned down, or imagine if I'd grown up in a war-torn country or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in this way, we can use imagination to always be living in hope and gratitude. Those are the two things. Mm-hmm. It's like hope because we're walking around imagining how things could be better, and gratitude because we're walking around imagining how things could be so much worse. Yeah, it feels like an almost reverse stoicism of like, I feel like the stoics, they try and they like consider the two extremes and they choose to live in the middle. <laughs> But I feel like with whatever you're describing, it could be <laughs> you imagine the two extremes, but like try and push yourself to always be <laughs> like trying to make things better. And in the solo scene, I imagine there'll be more forms for those types of things, because right now we choose not to even bother imagining a better bus route, because it's like, even if I came up with the perfect bus route, no one's going to listen. Yeah. And you were talking about with work, it's like we often are at work and it's like this one little change could just make my day so much better. But it's like if you even bothered to tell your bosses this, odds are they would just say no yeah. without considering it. Or they'd be like, no, like that's a waste of my time. And they don't actually consider the people as competent or yeah. well-knowing. So almost on principle yeah. because it's because it's someone else's idea. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that a little bit next year or next week. Our, our general reluctance to, to, to listen to other people's ideas, basically. Mm-hmm. Imagination, that is. So it's like a selfishness of creativity my mm-hmm. idea is best i don't like yours yeah cool and for the final part of the episode which was just something i thought of during the week that i wanted to talk about but then as the episode neared i really didn't want to talk about because i feel like it's gonna make me grumpy and angry and it did every time i tried to think about it we wanted to have a little 
rebuttal of sorts to the idea of AI-generated art and stories in a similar vein to what we did in the degrowth series towards the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So perhaps a lot of people are familiar or maybe you're not with the AI generation machines where you type in something like okra plants mm -hmm. on someone's head and it will just generate an image of this yeah. out of thin air. Mm -hmm. Not really out of thin air, but yeah. ostensibly out of thin air. Okay. To preface this, one, I just assumed this was just the meme generations that we've seen all over the internet recently of people being like, ha it's so funny. Yeah. But then I learned that The Economist, The Atlantic, a bunch of other news sites have just been using it for their covers and for images in the in articles instead of paying people to yeah. do them. And I was like, wow, this is like already an epidemic. It's not even just <laughs> like, oh, this could be bad in the future. It's just like that was if you choose to use an AI generated image for your article, you're just putting someone out of a job. Yeah. And it's like, that's insane. And it's like, art. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm already getting too like. Exactly. I think this is, <laughs> this is the topic where in, on the solo scene, we're going to sound the most like Luddites. And perhaps we are because it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much just an aversion to technology that I have uh, to this technology. I don't, I, I think it's really hard to just to imagine the actual good things that can come from it. It's yeah. like, why would this benefit society in a positive way? It's a, of course, it would radically restructure the way art works in most people's eyes, unfortunately, in the way that we pay for art. But why would it do so in a good way? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the, the benefits to that kind of? Yeah. And I think, um, like, the, my thoughts are going to be rather unstructured on this, but something I thought of was that we've been primed over, let's say, 150 years or so To, towards this moment mm -hmm. in terms of devaluing art as a concept. So like for instance, modern art, where it's like, we're going to paint the canvas white and things like this. Mm -hmm. Like that's a whole topic for another conversation. But what that essentially did was lower the bar so that great art in most people's eyes doesn't require skill anymore, mm -hmm. um, technical skill that is. And, but I, I'm not entirely against that because I still think there's a There's a real authenticity to it from the artist. Like maybe they meant something when they painted that red circle. Maybe mm -hmm. there was something to it, what Jackson Pollock was doing. Like there is meaning, there's feeling, there's a moment behind it. Like there's human spirit, there's soul to it. And from this, I think that it charts a winded road to what we see in movies today with the current state of blockbusters and the Disneys where everything is planned out to a meticulous degree, not out of any sense of artistic purity or like meaning, but just to make money mm -hmm. and to, to extend it. Like, would a drug dealer continually alter the recipe to make things a little bit more addicting? Mm -hmm. Or maybe Pringles does that. I don't Like, something yeah. like that. And so that, what that does is remove both the skill, because the movies aren't good, and any authenticity from it. Like, there's mm -hmm. no soul to those movies. There is no meaning behind it. Not just the Disney ones, but, like, throw a dart at the box office, basically, and you'll find something like this. Yeah. And um, so I think if that is what we call art or even high art, then there's no problem with AI generated mm -hmm. movies, plays, books, whatever, because that's the exact same thing. But yeah. that isn't what we should call art. So it's like it's this fundal, fundamental misconception of the idea of art, especially by people who are unfortunately driving culture through technology mm -hmm. that just really makes me sad more than anything, I think. Yeah. You also, yeah, you were saying like it's we've been primed for this. It's also with like printing press, and it's like everyone has a version of like the Mona Lisa in their living room. We're like, oh, I have Picasso on yeah, my exactly, wall. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like going to the Louvre. Art doesn't mean anything anymore to yeah. a lot of people. 
Yeah, because it's not just the modern stuff, which I think, I mean, I talked about postmodernism last week and I was like, I just think this is not great for the human. But it's like, I read so, so many Reddit posts and Quora posts and everything about people defending AI art. There's very few people attacking it yeah. because they're like, it's not going to take your job. Like, obviously, a human art is still going to be more valuable, but it's like it literally is taking people's jobs for one. And two, I read this huge thing about how AI art just isn't art because the meaning of art is that it has to come from a place of emotion. And like art is good for the artist. Mm. Everyone that I know has made art out of a place to cope with an experience. And it's like if you're not, if there's no chance of ever being rewarded for creating the art, I think it'll be less likely. And then people might have pent up emotions that they can't express because they're like, well, I can just type it into this machine and it will like show me the image like there's no actual but the actual putting pen to paper putting yeah. a brush to a canvas like it has an impact on you that's why art therapy is a whole field mm. um oh my goodness and imagine growing up in a world where all the art you see like even i'm specifically thinking of newspapers of like if the articles were written by an ai which is a thing that's like <laughs> happening and can happen way more so over the years you all grew up reading that and seeing these cartoon doodles by machines is like you're gonna just feel so alienated growing up seeing that well what makes me sad is that people won't or, or people might not yeah it's um, true. like we're, we're just basically plummeting towards this this hellscape as fast as we can and no one's asking questions about maybe we shouldn't be doing this mm -hmm. um i saw this this there was this twitter video trending it was just like one of those silly videos about it was a macro um like time lapse kind of of a different moth species like fluttering their wings it was just like one of those okay. like silly things and someone tweeted in two to four years anytime you see a video that's beautiful your first thought will be to wonder whether it's real or if the ai's prompt was beautiful video 15 different moth species flapping their wings professional photography 8k trending on twitter and i was like yeah but that's so sad that's not a good thing mm -hmm. um and again like being primed for it that's the algorithm kind of already does this it's not not in terms of the not in terms of the creation of the things but in terms of the sequence or the types of things that we listen to like we're already kind of fed a constant stream of slop like this mm -hmm. but at least it's made by humans at least like that's the yeah. low bar that it clears this is just content machine like that's the word i think is people have used that for for years now but this mm -hmm. is a literal content machine mm -hmm. and it shows exactly what's wrong with the grouping of all these things into content even the term devalues it immensely mm -hmm. yeah i saw a lot of posts and and articles in favor saying like how good would it be when you can just generate a movie for yourself like designed to suit your needs quickly and then you can have like a constant stream mm -hmm. it's like that sounds like a dystopia to me <laughs> yeah like i think i mean we've seen this you were talking about food low quality content is food for the spirit and for the brain and it's like we're gonna have a worse i, I was gonna say we're gonna have a mental health crisis but that's we're, we're in one but it's gonna be a worse mental health crisis and just like because the human spirit is so much more than just consuming art like it's the it's intangible it's like i can't actually explain it but it's if we keep doing this i feel like the spirit is going to just wither and just feel like those like a star floating in space it's not actually going to be grounded at all it's hard to talk about this thing without speaking 
meta- metaphorically because it yeah. is like a, it's a it's a spiritual response that you that we have to this. It's mm-hmm. it's intellectual also, but it's the this it's the soul speaking first and foremost. Yeah. Um, yeah, just makes me sad. People, if you want to <laughs> think about that on your own terms, uh, you can do so. I don't blame you if you don't want to because it's it's a fundamentally depressing topic, I think, and it's mm-hmm. it genuinely makes me like annoyed that we're just doing this because of 500 people who are really good at coding computers say that we should, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also when you go online to research it, it's like everyone who's online is optimistic about it. Yeah, because they're online people. Yeah. But it's like there's so many people that aren't online people who don't even know that this is a thing. But but radical changes through history have come from just a, a loud minority, which is, I think, will be the supporters to that kind of thing. Like most people, I'm sure, listening to this will be like, yeah, that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. But it's not most people's whims that will actually push this. It would be like corporations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a lot. <laughs> nice way to close the episode. Yes. Actually closing it how we started it with terror. Terror. So thank Fear. you all for listening. See you next week.